continue on in our section on marriage, right? So over the last week and really over all the five chapters that we've been in, Paul continues to paint uh, this ultimate picture of what it means to walk worthy of the calling. And here he says, here is the ultimate picture of marriage. And this ultimate picture is one that is rooted in, rooted in and united to Jesus Christ. And last week, Ryan was over here, Pastor Ryan came over, he graciously, he looked at the role of the wife, right? What, what does Paul say? Well, wives are called to submit to their husbands. And man, he did a fantastic job. He helped us see what this means both theologically, but also what this means practically for us, for you as a gal, as a wife. And it's not, men, it's not a call for you to lord over. Like we looked at that. Just because it says wives are to submit, this is not a call for you to use that uh, authority and, and to abuse that authority. The role of the wife is not to be inferior. It's not a secondary position or status. Instead, y'all, it's a beautiful example of a helper. To be very clear, the husband will never reach full potential apart from his bride. So we saw it's a call to joyfully, to ultimately submit to the headship of Christ. It's a call for each of us, specifically last week, for wives to look more like Jesus. He used this, this imagery of marriage is like a delicate dance, right? Where the husband and wife are learning. They're in this together. It's not in competition with one another. Instead, they're constantly learning about each other. They're, they're being led by the Spirit in order that they might, what? complement each other not compete not one being greater than the other but to complement each other so to be very clear no role is greater than the other as a matter of fact both roles come with greatness and here's why they both display the, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ they both display the gospel story a story where we see King Jesus who actually gives up his rights for our good and so husbands, Paul says, husbands and wives, you model this together for the sake of your spouse. That's what makes a Christian marriage so different and so glorious. It's different than the culture that we live in. And so now Paul pivots, right? And he brings us to the light, uh, brings us to, to the light and the role of the husband. How are husbands supposed to walk worthy of this calling. Let's look, Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to read 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. So a biblical marriage, one that's united to, one that's uh, rooted in Christ, it's going to be counter-cultural. All throughout this series, we've been talking about what it means to walk worthy. We're to live a counter-cultural life, and it should be no different in our marriage, husbands and wives. We should display the gospel message of Jesus. So, of course, that's naturally going to look different because the world is different. We have our example with our big brother Jesus. We have Christ. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to kind of take a step back. I want you to think about this. I want you to track with me for just a second. The Bible actually begins with marriage all the way back in the garden. 
Okay, so the Bible begins with marriage, with Adam and Eve, and it ends in marriage in Revelation 19. When Christ returns for his bride, we see the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride, his church, has prepared herself. So Bible starts with and ends with marriage. And so to help us think through this a little, let's think about marriage in regards to a covenant. All right, I want us to think about that phrase, a covenant marriage, rather than how we see this viewed in our day, in our culture, as a contract. So back in, the, back in the garden, marriage began as a covenant. Here's what I mean, Genesis 2. Then the Lord God made the rib, and he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This... God is speaking. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and he bonds with his wife and what? They become one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 19. So in other words, the marriage that's displayed here that Paul's talking about is not some contractual agreement. Scripturally, marriage is a covenant. It involves leaving your mother and your father and then holding fast to your spouse. You actually become one flesh. And this marks, as John Piper says, ultimately, this marks the covenant between Christ and his church. And we'll get there. But he says marriage exists most ultimately to display the covenant-keeping love between Christ and his church. So from the first marriage in the garden... It has always been covenantal. And here, here's what I mean culturally when it comes to how we view marriage. Because it seems like we oftentimes will treat our marriages or the marriages around us like a contract. We treat our marriage like it's just a piece of paper. And on that paper, it states the terms, if you will, if you think about contract, it states the terms of both parties at hand. And if I do A, B, C, and as long as the other party agrees to do one, two, three, if I do this, they'll do that. If I don't do this, then they can't do that and vice versa. And we say things like, hey, let's make sure, let's make sure we get it in writing. Think about the contractual language. Let's get it signed. Why? Because when we view marriage like that, we want to hold the other party accountable. So that's the, the terms of a contract. You want the other party to be held accountable, to make sure that they hold up to their end of the deal. So if you view marriage like this, then here's what you get. Legally, you're married. It's a contract with certain rights and obligations and responsibilities to, to live by according to the law of the land on this piece of paper. And if one party doesn't hold up their end of that contract, then we see legal action can be taken, can be stepped in. Legal action force them to either do so, uh, to do as they please, or to end the marriage contract with equal, or maybe not equal, settlement. It simply says, contractual marriage, if you do this, I'll do that as long as we can just, everybody both gets even. We both get what we deserve. Y'all, this type of marriage is based on, hear this, the benefits rather than benefiting. Now, that language contract now let's think about covenant it's a bit different it's a formal and serious agreement by definition it's a promise that is usually under seal between two parties at hand so think of this in regards to marriage a covenant marriage for Christ followers if this is you here today this speaks to us 
Marriage is more than a contract. It's a covenant between our spouse and the God of the heavens. So in a biblical setting, a covenant marriage actually forms out of what? Out of a desire to minister to the other person. To not lord over or manipulate the person to get something in return. Big picture, a covenant marriage is initiated for the benefit of the other person. Not for you. It's it's initiated for the benefit of the other person. One author says this, covenant is the heart of marriage. So at the heart of marriage is, is covenant. And sacrifice is at the heart of the covenant. Now, I want you to think of that. If you're married, I want you to think through that. You've been to your wedding, go back to your wedding ceremony. Even if you're not married, I'm sure you've been to a ceremony. You've been there. You probably heard along the lines of these same things. There's two people at the front, and they're standing in front of everybody on the most special day of their lives, and it goes something like this. To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, we're poor in sickness and in till death do us part. There's nothing romantic or really even glamorous when you think about that. There is if, you, if you're holding to the covenant-keeping God. But when you think about that, we're literally facing our spouse. You're looking at them straight in their eyes and you're saying, hey, this, this could get pretty nasty. My sin and your sin, now our sin. Till death do us part. Whatever God throws our way, we're in this together. You're standing there committing to the other person. Even through the cancer. Even through when you bury your child before your spouse, you're saying in the good times and in the bad times, we're in this together. My sin, your sin, as nasty as it gets, when you want to throw in the towel, when you're fed up with each other, we're in this together. Till death do us part, we're here together. Now I want you to think about that. God's love for you. His relationship to his bride, to you, Christian brother and sister here this morning, is not contractual. His love for you is covenantal. It is a never-ending love. And hear this. And hear this beautiful truth. He fulfills both. He fulfills the obligations of both parties. Like you couldn't hold up your end of the bargain. Me, I could not hold up my end of the bargain. You, sinner and sufferer, you broke the contract from day one. But praise God he didn't leave us there. The Father loved you so much that he knew, he knew that you would never hold up your end of the bargain. And hear this, he provided the way for you. He made the covenant and he said, here's the bridegroom in all of his beauty and majesty and his holiness and all of your sin and suffering. He said, I'm the covenant keeping God and I love you. And then what did he do? As we've seen in this text over and over again with Paul, he's lavished his grace on you. When you were dead to your sin, he never turned his back on you. He loves you. He's for you. He's the covenant-keeping God. 
Now, I know, I know that's a bit heavy for some of us to process, but I, I want us to sit in that, to sit in not our shame or guilt or failures. I want us to sit and, and soak up the beauty of God's word that he truly does love you. I want you to feel the love of the Father and all of his goodness, but I also know some of your stories here. Like I know some of us grew up in a home where mom and dad were divorced or maybe you've gone through a divorce yourself and I grieve, genuinely grieve alongside of whatever that story looks like for you. But can you hear me this morning? Can you hear this truth that there's still beauty in your story? Because God is not only a covenant-keeping God of love, he's also a God of redemption even when there is failure. Y'all, Christ is the only perfect groom. There's grace for you. Over and over again, there is grace for you. There's redemption in your story. And I know this to be true, that through a failed story, God will still find ways for his glory and for your good. And you can grow, you can grow in this, in the story of redemption that he has you in. He's a God of grace and he's gonna receive all glory through it. I mean, would you just take heart in that if you find yourself in that this morning and allow the spirit in this very moment to just minister to your heart. Maybe that's, again, upbringing. Maybe that's something you've walked through now. He loves you and he is redeeming every part of your story now. And that's good news. So Paul says, as we go on, he says, husbands, as we continue on, just covenant and contract, let's, let's keep honing in on this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So husbands, here this morning, wives, this is the time where you nudge and say, listen up. Last week, the husband thought he could nudge, and then Ryan totally just, you know, disbanded that. There was no nudging of the wife last week, uh, as we saw clearly and rightfully so. But listen, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. This is the command of your life. Husband, you've been empowered by the Spirit to model the love that the Father has for the Son. And let me just say, it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to do this. Because everything inside of us is going to push back on this. I've never met a man who just wakes up and enjoys dying to himself every day. Like, ha, ah, today I get to die to myself. This is so cool. Never met anybody like that. This isn't a call to love if you've been loved back. It's not a love that focuses on the benefits. Remember, it's a covenantal love that is centered on what? On actually benefiting the other person. Tony Marita explains it like this. The Christian husband is called not to a life of proclaiming his authority and demanding his bride's submission. Instead, He's called to a gospel-captured husband who chooses the cross, not a throne, to define his relationship to his bride. For Jesus gave himself up for his bride, and a husband is called to do the same. Y'all, this is our example. Rooted in Christ, we are to lay down our life with no expectation of anything in return. 
And I love this because Paul actually, fellas, he gives us, he nudges us a little bit more. He gives us a little clarity on what sacrificial love looks like. Because I could stop there, right? Like we're just supposed to lay down our life. But what does that look like on Tuesday for you? What does that look like today? What does it look like when you have children in the season of life you're in and you're going different directions? What does it look like for a single right now to actually walk in this? How am I prayerfully considering what the Spirit might do for us? Well, he says, make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. So we're called to make her holy, to wash her in the water and the word of the gospel. Now think back to the gospels just real quick with me. When Jesus washes his disciples' feet, the sacrificial love that took him to his knees, the King of kings, the Lord of lords who poured out water on their feet, their smelly, nasty feet. And what did Christ Jesus do? He began to wash his disciples' feet. Or we could even go back to the Old Testament, Ezekiel 16. God uses this beautiful imagery to explain what he sees in the bride of Christ, in the church. And this is what, this is what the word says. Then I passed by you and I saw you. You were indeed at the age for love, so I spread the edge of my garment over you and I covered your nakedness. I pledged myself to you. I entered into a covenant with you. This is the declaration of the Lord and you became mine. I washed you with the water. I rinsed off your blood and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you. Oh, God lavishes her with his grace and washes her with the water of the word. Like that's the heart of the gospel. God initiates all of this. He pours out his love. He covers, he clothes, he pledges to them. He enters into the covenant. He declares, he makes you his. He rinses you, he washes you, he anoints you. The father loves you. And because of that husband, you can imitate this. You can You can walk worthy of this calling. So practically, fellas, I think this means we should love our bride in a way that helps her what? Helps her grow to look more like Jesus. Now you aren't, we aren't her gospel. Instead, we are to point her and model for her the gospel. So you have an opportunity to be an extension of this transforming, of this healing grace of Jesus. You should care about her spiritual well-being. Just big picture. You should care about her spiritual well-being. You should be in the word yourself. We, husbands, should be in the word ourselves. That is what should overflow into beautiful conversation with our bride. We should talk about the word with her. We should wash her in this word. We don't shame her. We don't speak harshly to her or about her. You honor her and you prepare her for a life with her ultimate spouse, Jesus. So what does that look like? You you know how she's doing in her own spiritual disciplines. You help her walk into her spiritual gifts. You help her in her friendships What is she loving right now in this season of life? You have those conversations with her. You care for her soul. You talk to her about her hopes and her dreams. What is she fearful of? What temptations or disappointments is she struggling with? Like think back, we're we're going on 16 years. If if you've been been married longer than that, if, if you've just been married two years, think back to when you were dating. 
Like think about those times as, as you, you asked good questions and you listened and you were interested and you were intrigued in what this person across the table was saying. You wanted to help, you wanted to step in, you wanted to care, you wanted to encourage, you wanted to lift their eyes. Paul says, love her. He goes on, says, love her like your own body. Provide for her, nourish her, just as you do for yourself every day. Like I have, I have a schedule. At 4.24, I wake up every morning. Well, not Mondays, but Tuesday through Friday. And I wake up, like I, I have this schedule where I, I try my best to take care and nourish my own body. It should be the same with my bride. If you have to schedule it, schedule it. I don't know what that needs to look like for you. I'm just saying we should nourish them. Take the attention. I, I found this this week and it was super helpful. Take the attention you give to yourself and channel that to her. Your time, channel it to her. Make the most, as we saw a few weeks ago. Be shrewd merchants. Purchase that time with your bride. Make the most of your time with her. And just as much as you long for intimacy and joy and security and health and peace and community, make every effort to provide these for her. So, big picture, husbands, shepherd her faithfully. Now that's a lot, excuse me, that's a lot to process. I know it is. Some of of you, maybe as, as a wife, are sitting there and you're longing for this. And you've been praying for this. And you've been pleading with God, would you give me this? First, I honor you for that. I honor you for loving and praying for your husband and I I beg you to continue to do that. Plead with the spirit of God to awaken your husband's heart. Plead with them. God, would you wake up my husband? Would I be able to encourage him no matter what? Would I be able to serve him faithfully no matter what? So I honor you for that. Continue to be diligent. And other husbands in our our midst, we have a chance to fight shame and guilt in this because some of us are going to hear this and we're going to say, man, I am so far removed from this. None of this qualifies anything, any type of husband I've been. I've never saw my dad do any of this. I've never been around this. You're you're saying all these things and you're going to have a tendency to run to shame and to guilt. What I'm trying to do is to get us to see that because, husbands, you are so loved by the Father that you actually can love like this. You can love like this. I sat with some guys on Friday. I posed this question to them. I said, why are we so willing to be vulnerable with everyone except the one that loves us the most? Some of those conversations I was talking about having with your spouse. What's our fears, our failures? Like those are, those are intimate conversations. And we are so quick to be intimate and vulnerable with other people except for the ones that actually know us the best. Maybe that's just me. But it wasn't just me in this setting. We all came to the conclusion of, yeah, we're, we're quick to be vulnerable with so many other folks, except with the one who actually loves us and knows us the most. Pride gets in the way, fear of letting them down. Like you have to keep this all together. 
Like you have this attitude of, of I just got to have it all together. I can't let her in on my, my deepest, darkest secrets. I can't, I can't pretend uh, or I've just got to keep pretending because I can't let her know my weaknesses. I'm supposed to be called to be macho men. That's what the world says. My wife needs me to be the rock. No, she needs the grace of Jesus and she needs to see that it's okay that you're not okay. Because when you put on this fake, um, this fake presence of that you have it all together, then what that breathes to your wife is there's no room for her to, to fail. There's no room for her to work through failures and weaknesses. There's no room for her to even grieve because you have set the stage that I have it all together. And that pushes back on her. That's not what she's asking. She's not asking for for, for She's not asking for perfection. She's asking for the grace of Jesus. Husbands, you, me, we need the grace of Jesus. And that's what our spouse needs as well. And for years, for me, man, just to be very transparent, this, this was me for years. For the first seven years. We're going on 16. This was me for the first seven years of our marriage. I would let pride, fear of letting Cody down. I did a terrible job of leading her. I would struggle with sin and that and that sin would turn into shame and shame would lead me to serve out of a wrong heart, almost like a duty or obligation, mainly because I felt like if I had to do things to, mainly because I felt like I had to do things to earn Cody's favor. And the crazy thing is that she never knew any of this the first seven years of her marriage, or at least she didn't tell me. I'd listened to so many lies from the enemy and it was driving a wedge between my wife, the one who loved me most, the one who knew me better than anyone. It was driving a wedge. And if it wasn't the shame of this, this sin and allowing her into my life, then it was pride, right? Like we were in the ministry together. So I assumed that her discipleship, her washing of the word had nothing to do with me. Why can she not just feed off of all the things that I'm doing, all of the good gospel ventures that I'm doing? Isn't that enough for her? And I'd ask questions about, you know, when we did have spiritual conversations, I'd say, Man, I'd ask her questions. Hey, what are you reading? Wasn't really interested in, in what she was reading. It was just an obligation. And so my attitude would come across as shameful. I'd get frustrated when she'd ask me theological clarity, like, hey, can you help me with this? I was harsh with her. I was not loving and patient with her. And the crazy thing is, I wasn't even walking closely with the Lord at this time. But something changed for me. And if you find yourself in that, men, something changed for me. We had a community around us. They were constantly pointing me to Jesus. They weren't afraid to call me out and to help me see my sin. And I had a brother look at me. And he said, you got to let her in. You got to let her know that it's, it's okay to not be okay. You need to give her space to experience the grace of Jesus and to allow her to walk in that love. Not this false image, Matt, that you have it all figured out. So when I started living out of this true gospel identity, the one that I realized I was dead to my sin, 
the one where Christ Jesus saved me. I did nothing to earn his favor, his grace. I didn't deserve it. But when I started living out of this identity of what Christ had done for me, my marriage radically changed. I went from a checkbox marriage. I was doing things from the the wrong heart and forgiveness and grace began to pour out of my heart instead of bitterness or harsh words. And I I realized that Christ loved me at my absolute worst. I didn't need to clean myself up. I couldn't clean myself up. I couldn't do things to earn his favor. It was in that moment where Jesus said, hey, I've got you. That's actually, you're the one that I want. That I gave my life for you, and that changed everything for me. So my fight right now, as a husband, 16 years in, I've got it all figured out, right? No, my, my fight right now is not running back to that old identity. Like it's actually owning my own sin. And it's a lot slower pace. It's being present. It's asking good questions. It's wooing her and serving her with zero expectations in return. Now that's the ideal day. But then life happens, right? And sin enters. But that's what I'm fighting for, to not return to the old identity. So if I can just leave you husbands in closing with several practical applications for this week. Really, husbands and wives, I want you to hear this. Whether or not you're single or married, the first thing is this. Reflect on the love of Christ for you. Like That's the the number one starting point. If you're like, man, I just want to do this, don't ever move on from reflecting on the love that Christ has for you. Delight in him. Grow in delighting. And if you need help with that, if you're like, well, this, you know, I've tried 13 different Bible reading plans. Hey, Let's just start with the gospel of Jesus Christ and who he is. Let me help you. Let me come alongside you and help you. Let's get involved in a community group. And let's let those men and those women pour into you and help you understand this true gospel message. Let's start there and let's delight. Let's delight in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so that this week, today... Don't say, well, Monday is a great day to start. No, today is a great day as we're singing songs in just a moment to delight in what the Father has done for you. Today is the great day to do that. Pretty sure that's the ABC phone. That's interesting. Uh, Make sure you say ABC, okay, Nick? All right, single or married, reflect on the love that Christ has for you. Number two. Super helpful for me and helped transform a lot of this. Be in community. Be in community. You both need gospel community. And here's why you need that. You both need a place to breathe. You both need to let others in on your struggles. It's gonna, pride's going to push back on this for both of you. You need people to pray for you. You need people to minister to you. Husbands, this is going to bless your wife tremendously, more than you know. But you're going to have to die to yourself. You're going to have to. You're going to have to just lay down all of that. Be in community. Reflect on the love of Christ. Be in community. The third thing. This radically transformed a lot of of my harsh words with her. Be an expert in her strengths and not in her weaknesses. Spouse, husband and wife, learn your, the, learn your spouse's strengths and become an expert in them. 
Think about it. We are super critical. The way she loads the dishwasher is not the way I load the dishwasher. And I can just, I can just hone in on that. Babe, we can get 13 more plates if we do it this way. Why? What does it matter in the big scheme of things? Focus on her strengths. She does most of the dishes. I know that's probably what she's thinking. Um, that was a terrible example. Uh, become an expert in their strengths and not their weaknesses. Our go-to, your MO is going to be focusing on the nitpicky things. Discipline of the children. Timeliness. You're gonna, and in that timeliness, let's just say husband and wife are getting kids ready and they're coming to church and the husband is in the car and he's honking, let's go, let's go. And, and you know, on the way to the, he's like, hey, seriously, he's going to say this. You're always, wrong answer, you're always late. You're never on time. What do I have to do to help you? And in, in the, mind, the mind of a man, they're thinking, I'm fixing this problem. I'm fixing this problem. My wife is the problem. Here's the problem. She's late. She needs to set her alarm 20 minutes earlier. No, 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 no. That's not the problem. The problem is, is you were probably in the car while she was getting three kids ready. Maybe you should step back in and help. Maybe you should sacrificially love, but stop saying things like always and never and be an expert in her strengths. If her, stuff, her, if her weakness is being late, help her in that. Don't be super critical in it. Focus on the strengths. Hey, babe, I know we're running a little bit behind, but I tell you what, breakfast that you prepared this morning or how you handled the kids, man, thank you for that. You were super gracious to Brighton while she was putting on the 13 different outfits. Thanks for doing that. She's great at it. Become an expert in their strengths, not their weaknesses. Do that this week. Write it down if you have to. Have dinner, and at the dinner table, slide their strengths over, and y'all switch at the same time. What do you think her strengths are? What does she think your strengths are? It'd be interesting. It's fun. If you're single, pray for, for a husband or for a wife for the strengths that are saturated in the gospel. Take time this week. Go before the Lord and say, Father, would you please give me somebody who loves you more than me? What a prayer. Pray that this week if that's you. Last thing, pray with and for your spouse. For whatever reason, I talked to Cody about this the other day. Um, as a pastor, I can pray with a homeless man. I can pray if we were in New York City. If we, uh, I could stop and pray with anybody. I could pray with anybody who comes through those doors. I don't find any awkwardness in that. But there's something about the intimacy of praying with my spouse that just kind of like, we were talking about it the other day, like I, I don't know why I feel so weird. I don't know why it's so hard. And we do and we fight through, but not near as much as we should. Outside of like praying with our kids daily and, and nightly and, and, and praying together as often as we can, but why is it so weird for us? Anybody else struggle with that? Like it's the, the one that you are the most intimate with we have a hard time just opening up, just praying. Maybe that's just me. No matter what, I don't think it will hurt. Pray with and for your spouse this week. And don't pray for them in the sense that, God, would you help his weaknesses? Prayerfully honor the father in all of his strengths. Lord, thank you for a husband. Thank you for a spouse who, who loves you, who serves faithfully our family. And then plead with the Father, if that's you and you're, you're here, continue to plead with the Father 
to either save your spouse or that if you're here and it's hard for you to hear that, continue to pray for them. Man, I, I, again, I honor you for that and just want you to know that the Father sees you and loves you this morning. So God ordained marriage through his covenant. Christ set the pattern of marriage through his covenantal love and the Spirit now empowers us, sinners and sufferers, to walk worthy of this covenantal marriage even now. And one day it will be perfectly made clear. But for the here and now, you can walk in that by the power of the Spirit. Lord, would you help us in this? May our marriages and our churches be more faithfully, uh, be more faithful in, in telling and sharing the greatest of all the love stories of you and how you've pursued us and wooed us. You've called us your own. You've entered into this covenant with us. Would you help us this week, Lord, to to be reminded of your goodness and your grace and your mercy. And then just even in this moment, would you just draw near to our hearts as we think, as we consider, as we're prayerful and hopeful of the spouse of one day. I love, I love the, just the imagery of you, Father, are the covenant-keeping King of kings and Lord of lords. Would you draw near to our hearts this morning? Would you peel back the layers of, of stubbornness or pride, shame and guilt of years of hiding? Lord, would we learn, as Paul said, to walk in the light today? For grieving would we grieve if we need to to turn to you repent of our sin would you help us Lord do that in the gentle still voice that we hear today would it be one of your love that's pouring out in our lives in this very moment we need you spirit 